to Nonem Podcast International. In this uh, series, we talked uh, talk to cybersecurity experts all over the world uh, to discuss cyber domain of the war, make new connections for Ukrainian infosec community, and uh, learn from our colleagues abroad. Uh, today, we speak uh, with uh, Dr. Christopher Alberg, who is CEO of Recorded Future, the world's uh, largest intelligence company and uh, uh, chairman of Halt International Business School. He's also a member of uh, Royal Swedish uh, Academy of Engineering Sciences and a good friend of Ukraine. On February 24th, Dr. Alberg announced that Recorded Future is not neutral and that the company stands with Ukraine and will apply their full resources and capabilities to support uh, Ukraine in the fight against uh, Russia. So, Dr. Alberg, thank you so much for your support and it's an honor to have you on the podcast. Thanks for having me. Very good. Thank you. Uh, so, Recorded Future, it's a, it's a very unique and special company in cybersecurity. And uh, could you tell us a little bit more about its history, how, how you came to, you know, to start it? Yeah, no, absolutely. So, so myself, I have a long background in sort of doing data analysis and, and, and applying that to intelligence. Uh, I do not personally have much of experience in, in beyond the last 12 years, uh, pretty much no experience in, in what I would call information security at all. Uh, but I worked a lot on how to analyze large data sets. Uh, and I built a prior company called Spotfire. We sold that company. And, and as that was happening, literally sort of at the same time, this idea struck me. I was on the treadmill of all places. Uh, and the idea struck me that uh, the internet was sort of uh, becoming this place that had a whole lot of information, uh, sort of duh. But... Uh, if you could organize that data instead of for just strict search, but organize it for analysis and for insights, that could be very helpful in intelligence. Uh, and so we started working on this this idea and we sort of sort of organizing what got written on the internet uh, in a way that it could be used for intelligence, not cyber intelligence or cyber threat intel at that time, but more general intel uh, stuff. And, and uh, kept working on that problem, and eventually it morphed into what Recorded Future is today. We can talk more about it, but that's sort of how the origin story, if you want, of, of the company. So, uh, Got it, got it. Uh, yeah, uh, I think uh, we'll uh, probably have a chance to uh, also go into detail uh, for that, if we have a little bit extra time. Uh, I wonder if, uh, <laughs> if with the development of GPT, you have some, some new ideas to you know, develop on that. On that. <laughs> Yeah, no, so, so it's a good good point. And obviously that's sort of gotten a lot of us who are in the world of data analysis and these sort of things over the last couple of days to think uh, differently. Um, so I've been a long believer in in uh, trying to, when, when you deal with large data sets and at Recorded Future now, we deal with sort of what gets written on the internet uh, in some 30 different languages. Uh, we deal with a lot of code, both malicious code and good code, I like to say. And then the sort of the communications on the internet of the, the sort of the, the core of the internet at, at various sort of level, obviously at many levels of comms on, a, on the internet, and which generates enormous data sets. And you can try to think about how you or sort of do analysis on that. You might visualize the data, you might sort of tabulate it, organize it for questions. Uh, you might use uh, sort of, again, call them machine learning algorithms to classify this is malicious, this is not malicious. Uh, you might just make it sort of easy for humans to sort of traverse and organize and analyze the data, sort of pivoting their way through it. Uh, you might create workflows that corresponds to 
typical sort of things that happen. I don't know if we're talking cybersecurity in a SOC, maybe there's tasks that a SOC analyst does every single day, every 10th minute. Oh, let's try to take those 10 steps that they do and organize those. Um, now, when you see something like GPT-3, you're like, oh, I wonder if I could start asking sort of more advanced questions like, will APT-28 do a cyber attack on Ukraine within the next 48 hours? And, you know, I don't know if GPT-3 actually brings that any closer because the the actual questioning, the, the actual analysis behind that is still insanely hard uh, to, to sort of... GPT-3 may help you with some of the, it could be interesting building a conversational UI to that sort of data, but the actual mm. analysis of the intents and capability and timing of an adversary, that certainly haven't changed at all with GPT-3. So uh, yeah, I think it's more in sort of, the, there might be interesting UI opportunities and interesting sort of, but, but in terms of the actual analysis, I don't think that really changes the game. And maybe I sound like an old man who's being skeptical there, but. That's no, no, it. I'm, I'm, I'm pretty with you on this one. So <laughs> I don't think it'll what replace is your, uh, What is your prediction in terms of how much we can automate with uh, AI and machine learning? Right, like will it be kind of you know taken over and everything will be visualized like in the next five years and you know taking care of all, all the operations? You know, there is sort of the you have to sort of um, be the optimist and the pessimist in this. You know, we know that AI you know, all the way back from when Minsky and those guys met up in the 50s and had some of those famous summer workshops or whatever it was, and they started thinking about it. And we've sort of gone through a couple of sort of acceleration time periods, and then it comes into long winters. And the question is, you know, this feels, you know, I actually must say that I pretty honestly was in, not an argument, but I was in a discussion with my, my co-founder the other day, and I was like, ah, AI winter is coming, and then you get to see this. And you're like, I don't know, maybe I was pretty wrong here. Uh, the... There's, again, there are certain problem sets. I continue to be incredibly uh, impressed by, by Google image search. And, and you can imagine lots of interesting sort of applications to those sort of things. Maybe we can talk more about image analysis and, and those sort of things. Um, when, when you take something like that and you say, you know, go back to that SOC analyst who sort of repeatedly has to look at a, you know, weird domain, weird IP address, take a look at the page. Is there a phishing landing page behind it. Is this something I need to get shut down? Da, 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 da. There's like a whole workflow there. And so then I automate that and make that, you know, so that again, what the SOC analyst used to do, you know, just happened by the sort of, it may just happen in the background and maybe the person just approves it before you do the takedown. Now, once you've done that, if you explain that to somebody five years ago, they would say, oh, that would be AI. Now you're like, yeah, it's just a little bit of automation, isn't it? So. Uh, I think this is the other aspect of things when certain things, you know, the best chess um, player, automated sort of computerized chess player uh, or algorithms today, um, is that AI or not? I, I By certain elements of the book, for sure. But at the same time, it's sort of depth for first, just like brutally <laughs> running through lots of uh, scenarios and, and, and even less, I don't know, is it AI? It's, I don't know. <laughs> so so uh, I think it's one of those where we will slowly see more and more being run through, whether it's sort of statistical algorithms, machine learning, whatever we want to call AI. There are aspects that we do, and we can talk more about that. We do a recorded future that I do think would sort of fulfill Turing tests. There are other things that seem magical, but it's no more than simple counts 
So I don't know. I'm a little bit, you know, again, I've done data analysis since 1991. So I try to refrain from putting labels on it and let's focus on the problem that we solved. Yeah, we have, we have many definitions for, for AI. And, and I think one of the things that I like uh, that it kind of shifts with us, right? So one of the definitions says that AI basically is something that we, whose behavior we can't predict. And so when we, when we are now able to predict behavior of some system, it stops being an AI for us. Now it's just just an algorithm essentially. So, and as we, we get more advanced, yeah, and it's much more powerful when we think about it in terms of algorithms. Now, I still think the Turing test, the way that people sort of originally came up with that and talked about it, that's sort of like if we can sort of. I don't know, I remember the exact wording, but more or less, you know, can we emulate uh, human behavior in a narrow sort of domain, or maybe not so not so narrow? We have parts of a recorded future where we're uh, where the our system has to interact with humans on the other end, malicious humans, and and where we've been able to sort of create parts of our system that sort of mimics humans and are able to interact with humanoids on the other side and and stay in the uh sort of um undetected uh, doing that and and you know well that that sort of fulfills the Turing test in some very narrow domains and that's great uh, yeah, so, so it's not I, just I, passive yeah. passive observation right yeah it's, now, it's so, both so... observation and interaction observation mm. and interaction but very narrow interaction but it's help in, uh, interactive enough to be able to accomplish the task though. Now, is that AI? I don't know, you know, like just, just call it automation, but you know. I see, I'm... I see. <laughs> I, I wonder how do you even choose like what, what signals to work on uh, out of everything? Like, do, do you look at Twitter or um, some other data? There is so much data that it just becomes so overwhelming. Like how do you, how do you even deal with that? So, so first of all, in reality, we've done this for probably 12 years. So you slowly navigate your through to what, what's meaningful and not. But if you think about sort of the, the levels, the levels of data, we started with what got written. So originally it would, would truly would be sort of open source. Uh, back then you'd see, you know, maybe it's set in a, whether it was on Russian soldier writing on BK or, or in a Russian newspaper, where it would say that the uh, 76 uh, airborne division of in Pskov is is sort of um, doing a, a training exercise at Luga training area outside St Petersburg on Friday uh, we'd sort of find that text in Russian turn that into data so somebody who has an alert set up on I want to know if Russian military units is doing something within the next week you could get an alert on that so that was sort of how we started around the sort of text and this idea of being able to find those little tidbits about the future on Friday. So now you might be able to put a satellite on that training area when the 76th Airborne Division is gonna be there. Um, so that's sort of where we started in that sort of text analysis. And we took that into what, you know, call it dark web where a lot of these, you know, cyber criminals are and the whole messaging world, which obviously has exploded in itself, whether it's Telegram or other sort of places where these sort of interactions were that's sort of that le level of where you find text and and then recently also imagery so we collect millions of images every day into record a future and that comes with this text and we can do similar sort of analysis of the imagery then we got into what i would call the code layer 
which is sort of the, you know, where you have both good code and malicious code. And, you know, you probably know more than I do about malicious code analysis, but you can start, you know, if somebody talks first about a exploit kit or whatever, now you can actually get your hands on it. Now you can sort of connect those dots in interesting ways. And then underneath, there's the whole layer of, of you know, network type stuff where whether, you know, you find malicious infrastructure, good infrastructure, and be able to connect that. So basically, we I'd say that there is sort of like 15, 20 big sort of data sets here that we have, but they originate out of millions of things. Some of them are big. You know, Twitter might be a big data set. Telegram might be a big data set. Domain name registrations might be a big data set. Uh, network traffic might be a big data set, but then there are some others that are small, but you know, the, the trick is obviously to connect these and, and either build workflows that allows you to analyze them or make it sort of so a human can pivot their way through it or make an algorithm that can pivot and analyze, uh, analyze their, their way through this data. Right. I didn't so really like... answer your question though. I didn't really answer your question though. I think you, you sort of got to pick some big sets of data that that can have a big impact, but the trick is to figure out how you connect them, and you know that is sort of the classic way of thinking about intelligence, and where you sort of want to add to your holdings in a way that when you add new big data sets, they allow you to to connect connect dots in a way that hasn't been done before. Yeah, and uh, as sorry to interrupt, a, a lot of folks probably know that we typically have Vlad here, and just before the start, we didn't really have connection with him so but he might still join us so you know let's keep an eye on him in case he pops up on the stream uh yeah no thanks uh, thanks for that response uh, it, i i totally understand that you probably can't uh, describe all of you know uh all of the methods that the company basically came up with within like a decade uh but it's just very interesting how how you can distill everything you know all the noise and information field um close to uh, you know, and, and boil it down to something that's actually useful for analysis. And here's Vlad. Okay, but what you just said, what you just said is is the trick to figure out how you a get find the signal in the haystack, signal in the noise, and then b put it together in a way that is meaningful to a task that somebody needs to do. And that task can be sort of a small. I talked about the SOC analyst all the way to the strategic. You know, if we look at the the data, if say that you're in 2021 and you had data over the last five years, if you aggregate that, what did that tell you about Chinese cyber activity versus Taiwan? You know, so there could be these short time frame sort of things and then these long time frame sort of analytical activities and both are super interesting. Uh, got it. Now that we have part of Ukraine uh, on the call, I guess the perfect question will be about uh, activity of uh, recorded future in, in Ukraine. So recently you announced a large hiring campaign uh, in Ukraine that over the next uh, two and a half years, the recorded future is uh, planning to hire 100 engineers in Ukraine. Um, mm -hmm. First of all, once again, thanks a lot for the support and for, for developing kind of professional relationship with Ukraine right now in these times. Uh, but uh, could you tell a bit more about this decision and uh, what, basically what's your plan for, for the Ukrainian office? 100 people in Ukraine. 100 people. Yeah, I wouldn't challenge that uh, plan, but I'm really interested to see how, how you achieve that. <laughs> yeah, no, I'll tell you, I'll tell you. So, so first of all, we'd never made it sort of a big deal out of it, but we had a development team in Ukraine. Uh, so about 30 people historically uh, who has been working on various parts of our product. Um, 
you know, I would call it mostly engineering, a little bit of intelligence and data analysis type type stuff also. But these but are most, like builders, not threat hunters, not analysts, right? Mo mostly software developers. Yeah. But also some some intelligence. Oh, 100 and, of these folks is like absolutely doable. It's feasible, like in no time. Ukraine is very mm -hmm. fertile in this regard. But regarding threat analysts, uh, like more cyber type of mm -hmm. people, 100 is a lot. You know? No, no, we're in, <laughs> and I'm talking about software people. It actually, we, and, and so it's cool. We announced this a couple of months ago and we put that number a hundred out there just, you know, to it's, and it is at one level, it's a small number, but at the same time, you know, because in reality, as you know, when Ukraine is going to be rebuilt here after the war, we're going to have to find ways to get to a hundred thousand or a million new people sort of being hired, but we just sort of a we've loved the work we've seen of our software engineers in, in Ukraine, just fantastic work. And then B, it's sort of like, so that's sort of what's beneficial to us. Let's hire more, you know, the, the, but then obviously if we could sort of send a little bit of signal that we're, we're willing to do it and we're not afraid. So then look, the rest of the world, you don't need to be afraid either. And so we've hired about 10 people since we started that. And to your point, Vlad, that's gone really well. And, you know, there, and everybody's like, yeah, but what about the power outages? And, okay, so maybe we lost a couple of hours of half a day oh, here. And then, you get but, used you know, to it very quickly. <laughs> yeah. Yeah. yeah, okay, so just for our listeners, maybe to understand the hiring strategy better, is it going to be like uh, hiring the uh, well-prepared, experienced analysts, or will there be an induction uh, training uh, and openings for junior and entry-level staff. So what the job market should expect. So will it be a, a possibility to join the maybe one of the best, maybe, maybe the best, arguably the best uh, cyber analyst team globally, right? Or will it be still a challenge, right? So you, you have to pass the bar, you have to be well prepared, you have to have track record and so on so what so, so how again, will you position it in the job market so so first of all you can go check it out on on our job site i should have the url in my head but something recordfuture.com slash jobs so that uh -huh. and you look for and you just enter location ukraine there and the jobs that are listed there right now are three different types i think of software they're most software and qa rather than what you would think about sort of uh, cyber cyber jobs they're like they're, they're less of cyber analysts and more of programmers and, and and those sort of things that doesn't mean say that we would never hire what you're describing also but for now those is, is what's listed there and i okay. think um, that's, 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 that sounds realistic then <laughs> yeah yeah and, and it's also you know generally one has to be careful about like sort of uh uh to say but you know we 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 never sort of fall for the, you know, sometimes you want to hire people who are super experienced. Sometimes you want to hire people straight out of school. You, you want both. And, and I, that's my, I've built software companies for, I don't know, depressingly long since 1996. And, and it's easy to fall into the trap. Oh, I only want the young and hungry, or I only want the super experienced. And in reality, uh, you, you need both. You have uh, to use you know, spectrum yeah. thinking. Yeah. Yeah, if you just have a bunch of kids, that's a problem. If you only have a bunch of gray beards or like, oh, I know how to progress and you know, that's not good. You need, <laughs> yeah, both. Right. You need both. Okay, yeah. good. That's admirable. That's really, mm. really cool, I would say. So I would advise just, I don't know, 
maybe my opinion still has value so guys if you really want to pivot from development to something more related to actionable and uh, applicable cyber uh, strategy right so if you want to build a security product this is this is the place to be right now because th th this company has a very good trajectory uh, on all fronts right and uh, given uh, this opportunity if i were 25 maybe maybe even 20 years <laughs> younger uh, i would not miss it i would not miss it for sure and also as someone who who has uh, security and cryptography background doing software engineering now i would even say that if you already do software engineering and then focus on security it's not even a pivot that's more of like taking a very unique niche, which is uh, very in demand right now. So that, that's, yeah, I think, exactly. perfect time to be in. Exactly. I think maybe that's, that allows me to sort of make a point that, uh, and, and I, so, so the reason I think we've done well at Recorded Future is that historically, other sort of threat intel shops, actually, regardless if you were at a government shop or a company, uh -huh. obviously some of, some of the largest intel teams are in the governments around the world that they've taken a very manual sort of approach to things. Uh, and we thought that we would bring together Intel analysts with computer scientists and data scientists. And in that sort of intersection between Intel analysis, cyber analysis, uh, data science and, and computer science, we would find magic. And that's yeah. where we where we think. And now some of those people have sort of came from one area, have pivoted into another and sort of, so it allows for a lot of freedom around that. And I think that sort of intersection is kind of where not just in intelligence but i think in cybersecurity very large because it's going to become around, around data the it doesn't matter if you're sort of working at the firewall level or the edr or endpoint like all of this stuff is about data these days to figure out how you can sort of comfortably be in that intersection between data and security is going to be super important yeah that sounds strategically uh, robust because basically the intersections between different types of approaches and different technologies and different fields of knowledge this is where the innovation is born right and uh, of course just just for, for for it to be clear for everyone this is the this is the place where artificial intelligence will take a lot of blue team jobs mm -hmm. okay so so you want to be involved <laughs> Yeah, no, we we were talking just before you came on board a lot of, about that, and you know it's true. We sort of that you know in, whether it's artificial intelligence or simple automation, it will up level. But you know, and I've always had this sort of view that that will ultimately be because there is such a shortage of of sort of sock jobs or sock workers who can do the sock jobs and so on. So the automation it will be fine, and and the good analyst who thinks about how they can sort of actually drive the automation rather than being automated out they'll be in great shape and there'll exactly, be yeah, yeah. opportunities for the next uh, 10 I appreciate, years, 30 I appreciate, years. Yeah, I appreciate how Dr. Alberg avoids uh, artificial intelligence term, uh, just like I prefer to use machine learning uh, as not to make it sound like pure magic. I'm a layman, I can, I can say whatever I want, sorry. <laughs> <laughs> it's all good, it's all good. Uh, so we can't avoid talks um, about Ukraine in this, right? And we kind of always discuss your plans to expand in, uh, into Ukraine. So um, uh, in terms of cyber war and information operations, right? In your opinion, what were uh, main surprises or some key lessons learned from uh, cyber and information operations since the war started? So, no, obviously it could speak for days and weeks and there will be PhD okay. thesis 
Britain 50 years from now. So have to be careful about sort of how to how to even get into it. But no, lots lots of aspects. Um, clearly, I like to sort of make this point that the world have slowly migrated onto the internet, and 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 now over the next you know X time period the internet is sort of becoming the core and the world is actually going to become a call it a reflection of the internet. So the, everything is sort of becoming very internet centric and, and likewise in war, internet is sort of an intrinsic part of war. And unfortunately what you guys have had to sort of experience here is that the internet is, is a core part of war. Now, I think maybe we've overestimated slightly sort of, it's one thing about the lead up. It's one thing at the right at the cusp of it, but once it's war, Clearly, artillery shells is what matters, and that's sort of been sort of one of the big experiences here that, you know, people, whether it's in Russia or Ukraine or in the West, people are like, dude, I don't have enough artillery shells, so don't underestimate that part. But no, there there is an amazing, we've talked for, I don't know, six, seven years since we did our first version of the, we have this slide that talks about threat convergence between cyber, and we used to call it geopolitics, but it's essentially war now, and, and then disinformation. And it's, you know, pretty amazing how the internet sort of is at, at, at that sort of centerpiece of this, where the internet is both a key part of where it happens, but it's also becoming the most important intelligence sensor in this, you know. So historically, we think about intelligence being whether it's sort of from satellites in the sky or, or, or spies running around or listening into phone calls. And those are probably still sort of the the key, but it's it's migrating. It's migrating onto where the internet is sort of a, a really key aspect of that. Um, I think, you know, clearly there are many things that we've been very impressed historically by how Russia was able to sort of affect an election in 2016 in, in the United States. Russia has had longstanding information campaigns in Ukraine and they've, you know, worked on taking out power in 2017 and this and this and that sort of thing. But then, you know, the, the sort of other lesson here is as much as people have been impressed by this stuff, that once war starts, then some of this moves to the background because, you know, you, uh, you, you're going to be more focused on tanks and moving units around and logistics and all of the sort of classic aspects of war. And then the other aspect here, and then I'll pause for a bit, is also how when you, and in this case, Russia, when, when, when the, the sort of one of the parties end up on the back foot, when things are not moving in the way you want, and, and it actually becomes very hard, and this doesn't really matter whatever you're doing in life, anything when you end up on the back foot and, and the other party is sort of boxing, I'm sort of thinking of here, when, once the other guy is in the driver's seat, it's, it gets harder to coordinate, it gets harder to sort of fulfill the plan you want. Now it's even more sort of just back to basics and, and maybe some of the... the uh, information war and cyber stuff has sort of moved to the background, but I wouldn't, you know, left my, down my guard for one bit. These guys do have competencies and they have skills and they have people. So, so I would still not let down my guard one bit. So I don't know, and a little bit of rambling, but um, there are many aspects, and we can obviously keep drilling on this for sure. Sure, sure. Um, what do, what do and, you think and, about? I'm oh, sorry. Mm -hmm. Go ahead. I'm sorry, so, so what do you think about this? Uh, I don't know. Still theoretical. Uh, assumption that uh, cyber is less uh, preferable for, for achieving strategic goals because it's like accumulates you have to spend a lot of time you have to spend a lot of money resources in order to achieve something like I don't know 
uh, if you steal nine million dollars from a cryptocurrency exchange, it doesn't change much. But if you do it like on a weekly basis, you can very much continue your nuclear armament program under sanctions, right? So mm -hmm. it's like accumulated Remember. strategic yeah. effects of cyber mm -hmm. campaigns, right? But uh, when this, the war starts its uh, high intensity phase, there is no such such the time compresses you just don't don't have enough time to spend on cyber so that's why it doesn't really matter you can do it in the background because still you have people who can do it but it, it's not it's not uh, practical to shut down a power station for like eight hours with a cyber attack if you can shut it down for a week with a cruise missile right so the stakes are high and that's that's why it's on pause but strategically they're still developing the capabilities they're still projecting force and uh, first of all uh, pivoting more to uh, collection operations to uh, intelligence operations because their diplomats are basically expelled from everywhere Mm -hmm. So do do like uh, support support this vision that uh, the lack of like lack of effect operations is not because Russia doesn't have cyber capabilities; it's because they are not like practical at the moment. No, I I, I think you're right. Whether it's practical or not, but it's it's you know whether it's on physical sort of war, you know, disinformation or or what you refer to here as sort of more good old spying. Uh, and, and we'll put destructive sort of cyber attacks in that as well. You know, they or anybody has a fixed amount of resources and mm -hmm. you've got to apply those resources. And then number two, you've got to have an ability to actually do that in a coordinated fashion. And so number number one, actually, I think this this point about what I just ended up on there, in, they, they're on the back foot. And so then oh, under- That's a very good point. You have to coordinate yeah. it. There is not many capable personnel you can coordinate it with. On the ground no. at the moment. <laughs> and, and anybody at this, whatever level you are at, you know, like, so I, I, when I trained as a soldier, I only trained at the platoon level, but one of the hardest things you practice is retreating. And, and to be able to maintain when you're on the back foot, when you're retreating, whether again, at the, if you're running the 49 combines arm or combined arms army, or you're at the platoon level, even at the country level to, to retain coordination at the strategic level is very, very, very hard. So, and, and clearly they're there. Now to your point though, the other is the other aspect is, is, is also once you have started invading, you're going to be focusing on others stuff. And you're probably going to take a lot of your cyber capability and focus it on intelligence and collection. Uh -huh. um, uh -huh. Me, you, now, and, and there has obviously been lots of debates here. Why is the internet still up in Ukraine? Why have they been this? Is this because of Starlink? Is this because of your fantastic uh, telecommunications guys who are keeping the, the cables running? Yeah, that's good. We love I think that. It's somewhere and in between. <laughs> yeah. And then thirdly, is it actually in the strategic of interest of Russia to maintain them because they need them for their own communications and spying? So between those three, we probably have, to your point, you know, the, the answer. Um, but at the same time, I think we should fully expect that, you know, with the terrible campaign they're running now of destroying uh, critical infrastructure, whether it's with cruise missiles or, you know, running out of cruise missiles, whatever missiles, and then, you know, with cyber attacks on the other end, we should expect that that they'll let's assume for the worst and plan for that they're going to try to coordinate the two 
and that's obviously where they're going to have the best effect and and uh, doing we, we should totally assume that they're going to do both and figure out clever ways to stop that. 100%. And in this regard, what do you think about cyber deterrence? Does it, does it even, is it possible at all? And does it make sense in this case? Where is case? it? Where is it? Yes. Where is it? Yeah. <laughs> if, no, if it were it, a thing. <laughs> yeah. No, I was going to say, so, so a couple of different things on that. First of all, in, in the context of Ukraine, I don't think, you know, in, especially sort of in-country war there, I don't think there's much of deterrence at all. You know, the, I think once you're willing to bomb hospitals, once you're willing to bomb theaters full of people, you know, cyber deterrence is probably not much of a, you know, a, a thing. Um, and and now outside, you know, there's been a lot of people in, in the, you know, the rest of the Western world who's been like, why hasn't Putin... Uh, or or his posse sort of attacked us with cyber attacks and and it has not been in his interest because you know there, so there has been deterrence in the sense that if you know there would be attributable cyber attacks on the west the willingness of the west to send more weapons to ukraine or maybe even you know get get involved more has certainly been in a been a deterrence uh, for Russia to sort of stay away from doing cyber attacks on the West. They seemingly was, you know, sort of willing to blow up that gas line and, and, and sort of say there wasn't us and blah, 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 usual Russian way. But so, so cyber deterrence does exist, but once you're at war, it does not exist. I think that's sort of the, the, and, and, you know, deterrence the basically ends with war, exactly. So yeah, it's on the... don't have war and vice versa. <laughs> Yeah, if Klaus if Clausewitz was still here and he talked about politics and war being an extension of politics, so you know you you're going to put all these things on a line. You have sort of politics, you've got aggressive politics, you've got this and this and that. Cyber is here, chemical attacks is here. Da, da, da. You know, like all of this stuff is on a spectrum, and and from a deterrent point of view, as politicians, as policymakers, as wh whoever you are. You got to sort of make sure that you have both sort of a clear lines of deterrence, but at the same time enough uncertainty. And I think that's where a lot of countries around the world are trying to insert a certain amount of uncertainty in this. That it's not super clear to the and whether you know we're going to respond with cyber, respond to cyber with cyber, or respond to cyber with something else. Um, I think a lot of countries in the West are trying to make that sort of uh, play, play that game pretty well. But again, in Ukraine, I don't think there is that much of cyber deterrence going on at this stage. So, Recorded Future is uh, an example of private company that helps uh, Ukraine a lot in cyber defense. Uh, and um, given this experience and, and what we just talked about, do you have, uh, if this is something that you can share, do you have some advice on kind of the most efficient way to set up intelligence sharing and, and how it's been done? Do you work with uh, private companies or, or governments uh, or anything in that realm? It's a good question. So so what's, there's a couple of things that have been amazing that I hear uh, in sort of the trying to help out is, you know, because I think of that, you know, like you guys are doing 99.999% of it. And, and then there's a few of us who are trying to help a little bit with what we can on the edges. But intelligence sharing is something that people have talked about for in cyber for 20 years, 30 years. And there's been a little bit of this and a little bit of that, but you know, not, not much, so much impressive stuff. A couple of different things here. I think First of all, the sort of the general intelligence sharing or even the sort of the 
willingness of the US and the UK also probably to sort of use intelligence here as a bullet to, to basically call the say, look, Putin has this in his plans or he has this in his plans and being able to sort of not just share it, but literally publish it. Uh, it didn't deter him from sort of starting uh, the, the the war, but I think it got him uncomfortable and it sort of created a lot of uh, uncertainty inside his intelligence agencies and inside the policy apparatus in Russia about like who spilled the beans, who was, where did they get this information? Where did they, you know, so so that's sort of a one way of using intelligence sharing, if you want, or even, you know, publishing. Uh, then it's been pretty amazing to see the sort of the parties between private industry and governments coming together to sort of, and we've been able to, I think, do a lot of work, really good work here and, and collaboration, collaborating with parties that sort of has surprised us where we've sort of seen whether it's sort of a narrow communications group on whatever channel or pulling together data sets in, in surprising sort of ways to, to help you know, Ukrainian entities and vice versa, actually, the sort of the interactions have moved very fast there in a way that historically, when you see these sort of things, there are two things that gets gets in the way of it. Lawyers were like, oh, I can't share this. And then number two, sort of declassification committees, which they have to exist. But, you know, come time of war and a lot of this stuff is out of the window. And 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 I think the, the way that Ukrainians have been able to sort of do this with still very good smarts to be careful about what you share or not, but but do it at a pace that I think have just sort of told told the world that don't let the lawyers and don't let the classification committee declassification committees get in the way of of uh, operations. And very impressive, and I hope that will teach the world a lot for the long term. So I could talk for a long time about this, but it's uh, got it, got it. impressive learnings. I also think that it's you know. The, the experience that we have with Record Future is that you're not just going to get good intelligence from intelligence sharing. It's just not like, you know, like it's like a telephone game. You can hope that you're sort of passing information around. and But from that, you're not gaining an integrated intelligence view. And what we try to do at Record Future, frankly, a little bit of sort of commercial here is just pulling together all this data into that integrated view. And that's not just going to come from sharing. Somebody's going to have to bear the brunt, be a principle mm -hmm. of intelligence and sort of aggregation. And that's obviously what we're trying to do. So it doesn't magically happen from, from sharing. Is key right. To... And, and with kind of advancement in, in, in this area, right? I want to also follow up on the, on the previous question where we discussed you know, cyber versus kinetic uh, and wonder, so we already see how it played out in, in this uh, war, in the beginning of the war. Uh, but what do you think about future possibilities uh, of coordinated cyber and conventional operations? Do you think we'll still see this kind of pre pre-operation where they'll try, you know, to black out as much system as they can, especially communications, and then, you know, uh, go to full-scale war again? Or is this something that, you know, just happened this time, it worked because, you know, people weren't ready or, or whatnot, and, and, and then it's not going to have much. Let, uh, let me clarify this. You mean, you mean uh, will there be like strategic uh, precursor for the uh, tactical operational action on the ground or will there be like assistance to actual battle commanders on the ground? Probably the first one. Basically, will they try okay. to go, go with cyber first and then before they go mm -hmm. with uh, conventional we'll operations? Strategically and then... Exactly. Yeah, yeah, then exactly. Put no, but, but, you know, so, 
and again, remember I men mentioned that point about this slide that we had. We had cyber and and geopolitics sort of like all the way down to war and then disinformation and that sort of aspect of thinking about war has been you know the the role of the interplace between intelligence and war has been there sort of forever obviously i think you know, again with my swedish background i think of uh, gustav adolphus the second or whatever his name was who invaded uh, germany in 1630 as part of the 30-year war 1631 maybe you know and part of that was sort of big spreading flyers with sort of uh, yeah, convincing people that pro Protestants was better than Catholics and uh, Huguenots. And, and, you know, so the information warfare has always been part in having spies and all this sort of like that intersection of all this stuff has always been there. Now, so so given what's been going on in Ukraine and, and Russia here, you can be damn sure that the people in China and Taiwan and a lot of different people who are sort of in the surroundings of that are studying this stuff very carefully. And and figuring out like what does this mean for you know doing an invasion of uh, of Taiwan now if, if make no mistake it's not like you're going to sit in China and push a couple of cyber buttons and Taiwan is 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 uh, invaded but you know on the other hand uh, are there potentials to sort of really shape I mean, that's many times if you think about it if you're a war war fighting commander you're going to think about how can I shape the battlefield. So that it's, you know, and historically that's been about how do I bomb it to pieces before I show up. Uh, but if can I shape the, the battlefield, you know, in this case, Taiwan, maybe uh, in a certain way so that when I show up uh, with my kinetic uh, sort of uh, capabilities that it's, it's in, a, in a state where it's easier for me to win. Yeah, people are going to, you know, think about what, what that means. But I also think that people learned here there is no magic cyber button. Um, yep. So, so I think so. A lot of learning. No yet. <laughs> yeah. No. And 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 you know the the absolutely. If I was the guy who was uh, commanded tank brigades in in Taiwan, I would be going through my defensive electronics on on that for sure. You know. So so uh, there there's a lot to learn, but but there is also no magic here. Uh, so let's talk a little bit about uh, information operations, right, and uh, Russian propaganda, because they always use it in sync with all other operations, whether it's conventional or cyber. Um, so in the recent months, Russian propaganda looks like uh, they're not doing such a good job anymore. It's, it's not coordinated. Um, they have less successes, but at the same time, there's a lot of... Um, uh, more of low quality stuff like deep fakes that are very easily detectable and basically it seems like they create noise. So do you think this is uh, just result of hectic, you know, uh, that things didn't go as they planned and so this is a result of this house or is this noise intentional and it's by itself a tactic to create kind of more noise, uh, you know, in the information field? You know, it's obviously hard to know. Uh, and they have very competent people at this who've been successful for a long time, both in GRU and FSB, and maybe a few within SVR, I'm sure as well. That we may know less about. Um, so these uh, units are still there. It's not like they're now unemployed. Uh, they've been trying, to your point, and and whether it's sort of in Ukraine as well as in. Western Europe, for example, I I would have thought that they would have done a much better job at creating an, a, you know, basically an information wedge into Germany to say, 
you know, coordinate how they would distribute gas with disinformation campaigns to get Germans to say, look, just get us gas and oil and, and we'll do whatever. You know, there, there should have been enormous opportunities to, to exploit there for, for Russia, but they haven't. Uh, whether, I don't think it's incompetence, but I think it's probably to your point that it's about sort of not being able to pull it off, you know, just, you know, just being chaotic, just being sort of uncoordinated and not having the ability, sort of being on the back foot. And, and you know, this sort of stuff is harder to do when you are on the back foot. Uh, and clearly, I, I think that's what, what, what we're observing. Um, the, that, that would be my hypothesis, at least. Now, but again, does that mean that they do not have this capability? Absolutely not. Could, does it mean that they're applying this capability in, I don't know, this could be in Egypt, in when, you know, when people are worried about their access to wheat and, and you know, whether, you know, in Brazil or whether in places where, you know, where, where we may not see it as readily. And so I would be careful to draw conclusions about, you know, their capabilities. I think they have their these capabilities, where they're applying it, where they're doing it, whether they would, you know, start using it again, you know, the, this is, let's just be careful about drawing too big conclusions about the long-term aspect of this, because, you know, Russians invent, invented Maskerovkas, they invented a lot of these sort of whatever they, they have a whole terminology systems for, they came up with this stuff in the 20s or, you know, whatever, 1920s, so they've been at this for a long time, so I'd be humble, uh, even though they're on the back foot right now. Do you um, think uh, they may use the situation in order to experiment more? Just, just maybe yeah. to try out new stuff because the situation allows it. You don't have to take your like operational security and remain undercover because you have already surpassed the threshold of uh, military action, the warfare. Made it yeah. be an no, I, I think that's that's quite possible also, and you know the the, uh, but clearly you know what they. You know, they're, they're between sort of what governments in the West and, and, and Ukrainians yourself and, you know, there's, you know, clever people out there, Bellingcat and others who are sort of going at them to make it very uncomfortable. And maybe they're finding what that maybe what we're all, you know, the, the optimistic view is, of course, also that we're not falling for the same crap anymore, that we're getting a little <laughs> bit smarter <laughs> now. <laughs> it's, 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 it's good to hope so but. yeah maybe that's a little bit too optimistic but the the i wouldn't you know i wouldn't write them off let's put it that way so don't underestimate yeah otherwise we'll repeat their mistakes so yeah, yeah, um yeah. how how also, we have to say that you know you ukraine has been very good and like there's no question that uh, ukrainian politicians and leadership has been very good about driving your sort of side of things you know not in a and I wouldn't, it would be unfair to call it an information operation, but I think it's fair to say that you've been good about conveying a message and, 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 and individualizing that communication. Message. Yeah, yeah <laughs> exactly. Strategic communication. Now, but you know, the, one the person. The important part is yeah. that the Ukrainians got very annoyed by this, by, by this, you know, at a certain point around mid-January this year, you know, it's, uh, uh, it has become like information annoyance operation, not not not, <laughs> not 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 anything substantial. Just just you know that this is just a white noise. We got used to it. If anything important happens, yeah, we will maybe react. But all the other stuff doesn't matter anymore. Yeah, but but I think kind of to your point, like strategic communications, public relations, whatever word you want to call it, and and um, 
being intentional about that and targeting messages by country and so on. I, you know, Ukraine gets many gold stars for its ability to do that. And, and, and uh, you know, and again, you know, always realize that obviously the guys in Kremlin are going to call that or whatever GRU building, they're going to call it disinformation on their side, but screw that. Um, you know, it's always been part of war, strategic oh, communications, yeah. and, exactly. and doing that with excellence is important. Uh, this war probably is the first one where strategically Ukrainians, uh, success, Ukraine success depended on volunteers, uh, hacktivists and, and all, you know, all, all the community involved. Uh, so from your point of view, uh, how important is the work of volunteers and hacktivists in information defense that you can observe? Obviously a very tricky subject, you know, like the, so first of all, uh, when I laugh at Recorded Future, make fun of ourselves here. A couple of years ago, we wrote sort of a report, or not a big report, but it's still a report that said that ah, hacktivism seems to be dead, and and uh, how, <laughs> how wrong were we? Uh, so so just you know, you know, completely wrong there. We should always be humble. Um, and and um, it's been very interesting here, just observing. Like obviously, for years, it's been or decades, it's been part of the Russian underground sort of. Uh, the agreement probably with FSB and others that do whatever you want, just as long as you're staying away from uh, CIS state, Russia and other ex-CIS states sort of uh, systems. And, and so that left them to be very vulnerable targets. You know, man, it's been badly run from an information security point of view. So field day for, for hacktivists here, you know, very sort of easy targets. Um, then there's obviously a lot of people who are being all moralistic about like, oh, this could lead to all kinds of bad things. And I'm sure that's true. You know, like we have to be careful about things, you know, and, and, and so on. But hey, I'm, I'm, uh, I'm not going to be the moral police here. And, and, and I think it's pretty amazing what being able to pull off here. Uh, what it tells us about the future, uh, hard to say. Uh, it, it tells us that we better, uh, all, all of us, make sure that our systems are well defended. <laughs> I think that's sort of... <laughs> all of us are good thing. Because yeah. it's something that you... It's not coordinated, right? So you never... Uh, policies yeah, don't no, work here. It's uh, the sort of the amazing thing. It's like, again, I think, you know, I would put it in the, the broader context and say what Ukraine has done here very well is, you know, started obviously with an en enemy that, that we thought was more powerful than it was, uh, but but at least a big enemy by country and size, you know, and and has a bunch of sort of strong capabilities, with, or at least that we thought. But Ukraine has been very good about fighting back asymmetrically, whether that's sort of getting the West to sort of help out or, or you know, this IT army is another aspect of that. Now, do I believe that there's 230,000 active hackers sitting every day? No, I don't believe that maybe, but probably 10 who are very effective or, or 20 or whatever, it doesn't really matter. It, it's, um, it's another asymmetric weapon that, that uh, likewise we talked about the information operations where Ukraine has been able to do that very effectively and it's, it's impressive. Don't you think this war will teach us that uh, finally teach the world that cyber is not a big deal? Like, because I see this, this problem that uh, there were uh, tensions like and arguments in the high political circles of the US, all these concepts of cyber Pearl Harbor and uh, cyber deterrence and comparing this strategic domain of cyber conflict with the mm -hmm. nuclear, for God's sakes, I don't know why, mm -hmm. right? 
it may it come that to, to a point where everyone finally realizes that cyber conflict is like imminent everyone borders everyone and you need to be prepared and you need to have initiative and you need to be like capable to, to at least raise the bar and protect yourself and maybe even strike back and in the end of the day cyber is not it's not like the big deal you know it's a good substitute for war it's a good substitute for on on the ground uh spy action right it, it it's better to do it in cyberspace with uh, uh no casualties at all than than think about collateral in the real world right so what what i observe what's going on in cyber domain let's call it uh in in this war is uh, a confirmation after confirmation that it would have better happened in cyber <laughs> in an isolated manner and that would be it and yeah, everyone I, would be I would say that the I, it, it's sort of one of those where you can have you know it's a, again as we talked about earlier once war starts physical kinetic war it probably isn't such a big deal now and and now at the same time you think about you know where i think countries like whether it's united states or myself being from sweden originally you know, are quite vulnerable places and, and the internet has sort of seeped into pretty much everything. So do I feel very confident that uh, we have the resiliency to uh, stay ahead of an onslaught of cyber attacks? Um, I would like to think so, but do I feel confident where that, I'm not, I never use words like cyber for harbor and all this sort of stuff, but do I believe that there still could be, um, uh, you know, I don't know what to call it, uh, points of failure, I guess is the word is. I think about like when uh, uh, the company north of Boston here, uh, uh, Dine, had a, you know, outage, you know, and took down like broad, broad swaths of, of, of internet access and you know, it came back fast and, you know, not much of a problem, but, you know, there are still points of failure here. I think the colonial pipeline uh, attack taught us that, you know, that there are points of failure that can have downstream effects that are hard to predict. Now, does that mean that it's easy for somebody to sit in Beijing or Moscow and figure out how to quote unquote, take down America? No, I don't think so. And mm -hmm. this is kind of when we talked about cyber deterrence also, do I think that the decision maker in Moscow and Beijing also realizes that hmm, probably here in America, we have capabilities about taking out more on the other end. So now, you know, it's who knows it, it's it's hard. So so I'm not going to pretend to have the answer on that. Ultimately, uh, if I had to pick between an invasion with, you know, artillery shells coming down me or a cyber attack, of course, I'll take the cyber attack. Uh, you know, that the, uh, it will sort of a, a real war is uh, still a hundred times worse. But uh, maybe we won't be able to really take it apart as much as in the, maybe it's the, the distinction is not going to be as clear in the future. So we'll see. Definitely. And what are your thoughts on, um, so basically in the past few years, uh, right, there's been a lot of influence through social media and uh, a lot of it is kind of artificially uh, constructed, right, through bots, through botnets, um, or rather botnet uh, armies, bot armies, whatever you want to call it. <laughs> um, what are your thoughts about fighting bots and uh, fighting bots with technology specifically? Do you think we'll... Tactical bot groups. 
technical bugs. Mm-hmm. Yeah. yeah. Do you think we'll arrive uh, to a point where this is somehow solved technologically and we won't have a problem with it, or we always got to be aware that you know we can have opinions influenced just because someone puts enough money into it? So, so, so there's sort of two aspects. One is in the world of disinformation and mm-hmm. be it sort of bots on Twitter and TikTok and and all of that. Uh, you know, and that's very tricky in the sense that it's, you know, sometimes it's like when seemingly a couple of weeks or last weekend, was it when there was all this talk about protest in in, uh, in China on Twitter and somebody, presumably the Chinese government unleashed these inappropriate uh, sort of uh, adult language, we'll call it, uh, sort of bots uh, that poisoned uh, searches around protests in Shenzhen or protests in Beijing, and you sort of got all this more or less pornography popping up sort of thing. And, you know, so that was pretty, you know, it has that had been done before, but it's a, that's pretty smart, you know, like those, those sort of things. So can we write bots that sort of deal with that? I'm sure we can, or sorry, anti-bots or whatever, you know, filters, you know, again, mm-hmm. let's use the language filter. And uh, now at the same time, on the other hand, so live here in America, you know, one guy is going to hate Fox and, and believe that, you know, CNN is the truth. And the other guy believes that CNN is the truth and Fox is sucky. And so, you know, how do I fight that? You know, that's not as easy. Uh, one person's disinformation is somebody else's, you know, core truth. So that's right. much harder. And so I I think, you know, maybe the it's kind of to our earlier discussion around Will should I cyber workers or be worried here about being put out of a job by by bots? No, I don't think so. There's going to be plenty of jobs for for cyber workers of all kinds of sorts because that that this is undefined. There, like the, the it's not a clear defined problem here. Where you know the the Dan Gear, famous information security guy, you know, sort of a famous gray beard. He has this great point that he makes about the cyber. Is, is the only, he said, actually, I believe there are two, but there's the only place where the other guy, there, there's sort of a, when you're trying to measure things, there's like another guy who's fiddling with the data. The adversary mm-hmm. is fiddling with the data. Mm-hmm. And inherently, I think that's one of the reasons that we will keep having to have a human in the loop when it comes to fighting cyber threats. Um, and I think he's right. It makes and, and it's going to keep cyber people, if you want, cyber people. That sounds stupid, but you have, to, keep, you have yeah. to first resolve it manually before you automate. Yeah, you have to make you a know, concept. And yeah, concepts yeah. are yeah, not, not easily yeah. built automatically. Yeah. Yeah. Know, no, I don't think GPT. Yeah, GPT three is not going to put us out of business here any t- anytime short <laughs> soon. But you know, maybe I'm too you know too uh, pessimistic about that or optimistic. Call it whatever you want. <laughs> Right. Uh, actually take, uh, i will take optimistic thing <laughs> so so we try to run gpt right like to generate some questions for this interview and uh, one actually specific question was about internet research agency right um these trolls and bots that russia is using and like what was their uh, what was their uh, you know play in this war uh so i guess we kind of answered right about that we need to fight bots um one question I had, like, regarding, like, this hacktivism, right? Uh, so we have, like, this technical hacktivists, right, like IT army, uh, but mm-hmm. also basically many people joined, you know, this uh, defense from information operations, right? So many mm-hmm. people just spent half an hour, post questions, right, you know, uh, try to spread, like, in their social reach, like, try to spread some, like, uh, true facts and so on. Uh, so, like, what do you think, like, how, how important was that, right? Because I do feel, you know, I, I think that was a very big contribution, um, but I see like some skeptics, right, who see that, you know, oh, yeah, all these like, you know, better try to uh, 
uh, learn some cyber and try to hack Russia, right? Like, uh, <laughs> or something like that, right? So, but <laughs> yeah, some cyber and go hack Russia. <laughs> what is better to do, right? If if you want to, yeah, yeah, first yeah, of all, <laughs> first first of all, it's probably not that easy. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> and number two, yeah. you know, I don't know, it's hard to have a generic answer. If, if there's somebody who has expertise in a certain area and can meaningfully sort of engage. Now, there's an, a counter argument would say, don't, what, what do they say? Don't start wrestling with a pig because after two hours, you'll figure out that the pig actually really likes to wrestle. So, you know, should you just, sort of, you know, <laughs> don't poke the bear, whatever. But, but, but still generating signal on the other side. Yeah. Yeah. It could be. I don't know. It's hard. It's hard to say. You know. The, um, uh, unfortunately, it just seems like when you find a troll and you start engaging the troll. If the guy is going forward, yeah. Yeah, and the guy, and it's not even. You know, the troll. If if it's a troll who has is paid from whatever that Putin's chef guy in in at the IRA in Saint Petersburg, he's sitting there and he's making whatever. I don't know what they make in hour, hourly salary to make three, four equivalent of dollars, probably at a high level. And they're sitting there and they're paid for, they love being here. Like, that means more work for them. So, so you know, um, yeah. I don't know if you can actually win that, but that. Uh, but what, 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 what can you do? What can you do? You can uh, downgrade their, like, uh, update, tweakle. I don't need information presence, I guess. To filter them out. Or what? I don't. What can you do? Yes, I hope that you know we'll 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 have to hope or that the social media companies do a good job with this stuff. That to identify trolls, you know, identify you know fake accounts, identify like, the, you know, there's a lot of views on Elon Musk, but but he seems to be wanting to go after that part now. There might be other views on that. That people. Will be able, but we'll so see. What is it about like uh, uh and such campaigns? Because I think this is kind of you know counter-offensive information operations, right? That you kind of uh, they really uh, did a very good job, right? Of presence of true facts, right? Trying to mm -hmm. basically uh, visualize, okay, this is propaganda, this is fake. Mm -hmm. uh, so uh, like yeah, so so what is the thoughts about it, right? If, if it's meaningful, if it's possible to do, and if there are sort of simple like. But you know, you also know what the classic Russians, yeah, but what about, you know, like when you stumble on the whataboutism sort of guys, I've never succeeded in arguing with the sort of, when you get no, to you a whataboutism. You have to stop, stop right away because it doesn't lead you anywhere. It just, no, that, you, that would you, be you my spend word. precious yeah. hours or minutes of your life for nothing. <laughs> for nothing, yeah. I, I, for, I, I, yeah, yeah. They love it. They're, they're going to be like, yeah. Can we go deeper? <laughs> Can we just keep doing what about? I, I do have like a theory that you should try it once, right? And I think like many people who were like less known about bots technically, right? After like, you know, war started, they tried to fight in the information space. They found, okay, this, okay, existence of these bots, right? And they basically develop better habits uh, and understanding like, okay, there are lots of fake news out there, right? Mm. Yeah. We're around one hour mark here and uh, we, we have, have a question, question uh, yeah, from, from audience. the audience. Yeah. Exactly. Uh, so I just wanted to go, go ahead and, and cover that before we wrap it up. Uh, so the listener asks, uh, how do you assess Sweden's ability to withstand similar attacks that are now taking place uh, in Ukraine? So, you know, it's a good question. So, so first of all, I should preface by saying that I lived in the US for a very long time. <laughs> but I think Sweden is uh, from a, and I'll start on cyber and then switch it over to war. Um, 
Uh, so on the cyber side, I think Sweden has some scary aspects to it, where it's it's very highly uh, sort of uh, uh, you know the internet centric, if you want, payment systems, those sort of things. Like cash does ba basically does not exist. All of those sort of things, and that inherently leads to uh, to to danger because you have points of failure there. Like they are very proud of their this identity system that the government and the banks have come together, and it's sort of a single bank ID, as they call it, but dude, take that out and the society is going to go to full stop pretty quick. So there's, you know, sort of, uh, and the government has not have had its act together on cyber defense at all. The, the sort of the authorities there have been underfunded and with bad authorities for a long time. The national search and sort of the national cyber whatever is, just, I don't know what to call it, hen house sort of setup. But cyber I think they're now... They're now getting their act together, and they're, the new government that just uh, got in place is upgrading things. They're because they have smart, yeah. say, capabilities that they just got to get it organized. And, and uh, so I'm optimistic about where they're taking it now. It should be good. Uh, and it comes to war, you know, um, Sweden has underinvested in in defense for a long time. They sort of had thought about the peace dividend of, of you know, because it's very interesting, similar to Ukraine. We will not have wars anymore, right? At least not in Europe for sure. So why yeah, would you? Yeah, they've been at peace for 200 years and blah, blah, blah. But at the same time, Russia has been the enemy for a thousand years. It's the arch enemy. There's no question. Uh, and so I believe there's the sort of a lot of defense will in Sweden. So if somebody invaded, they'd probably be surprised. Uh, and then the question is, is there enough capability uh, to, to use that? And my only hope now is that they're going to be upping the amount of investment. It's going to take time. But also, I think what we've learned here in the war, you know, in Ukraine is that will of defending one's own soil is incredibly important. And, you know, these Russian soldiers that was sent over land in this case, and maybe in Sweden, they'd be sent over water. Uh, their willingness to win is be nothing compared to the willingness to defend on the side of Ukraine. And that makes the world a difference. We have a very famous quote by now by our now general uh, Zaluzhny, who said uh, in a few months before uh, the full scale invasion started, that the only uh, way for Ukraine to withstand it is if entire society on all levels stands up and, and, and fights back. And, and that's what happens. And that's why that's why we're all still, he still here and Ukraine is still here. Uh, so uh, with that, uh, our regular last question is, uh, is, what would be your advice or is there anything you want to say to Ukrainian audience? I, I in this case, I, I think because I, I feel worried that I've been sitting here and saying a lot of potentially, or in my mind, own mind, smart things. But, you know, like CC, I'm sitting here on the East Coast of the United States. It's warm, it's nice. And Ukraine is a war, it's cold, and it's terrible. So, but, you know, you guys have been incredibly impressive in what you've done so far. Uh, and and just keep it up. I think, you know, you're winning. And, and uh, it's time to just crush these guys and see you in Crimea. Thank you so much. Uh, winter is gonna be tough, but uh, yeah, the only uh, the only choice we have is is just to keep fighting. So, and thanks a lot for all the support because again, Ukraine wouldn't be able to to do it without all the support we get uh, from abroad as well. Thank you, thank you, right, folks. Thanks thank you. from us to you. So.
Thank you. Thank you so much. If, if there are no more questions, uh, we can wrap it up. And once again, Dr. Albert, thanks for joining us. It's been uh, incredibly insightful and, uh, uh, you know, hope, hope to talk to you again and hope to see all all work of you and, uh, and uh, of the quarter future in, uh, in the future. <laughs> <laughs> thanks for having me. Thank you.